Podcast New York. What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know. But now the battle begins. Dueling Decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling Decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York Studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy. Because it's your history, we just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. I am Mark James, and this week we are back with a bodacious B-movie battle. I will be representing 1990 alongside the other duelers in the decades they will be fighting for. First off, and back to the 80s, say hello to Man Crush. That's right. I'm so happy to be back in the 80s because I was in the 90s last week and it was kind of bizarre. And I lost. Spoiler. Uh, but yeah, I got B-movies of 1985 in this episode. Also joining us on the panel and still racking up the late fees from the 90s, please welcome back to the show, the incomparable Mike Ranger. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike Ranger from the Video Rangers podcast, and I am so excited to be here. And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. This week's celebrity guest judge is an award-winning director, producer known for pick it up ska in the 90s and here's to life the story of the refreshments and now you can rent and watch his new film the last blockbuster all rise and welcome judge taylor morden thanks for having me yay (laughs) so important (laughs) ladies and gentlemen the following contest will be held under dueling decades rules The judge's coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five dueling decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie after all five rounds, we will go to a final wild card round remember duelers review the show listen subscribe and play along at home as we commence another episode of Decades. all right let's go right down to our celebrity guest judge taylor morden for the official coin toss all right i got a vhs tape here to flip sweet uh mike you get to call it in the air this week uh, let's uh let's go with the cover all right Cover it is. Heads it is. Mike Ranger, you win the coin toss and get to select our first category. Where are we going? Uh, I think we'll go with movies, Mark. Oh, shit. Yeah, that's how bad my pick is. (laughs) Yeah. Because on April 28th, 1995, Chuck Norris would star in his last theatrical release before kickstarting his direct-to-video career in the canine buddy cop movie Top Dog. But unlike Turner and Hooch or even K-9, this film had movie patrons in theaters across America checking the bottom of their shoes. Chuck Norris plays Jake Wilder, who has teamed up with Reno, a police dog whose handler is killed. 
Now, this film does feature a PG-13 rating, but it is mostly targeted to a family-friendly audience. Uh, check out some of these uh, family-friendly uh, plot points here. We've got uh, neo-Nazis, white nationalists, racist murderers, terrorism. Uh, the film actually opened nine days after the Oklahoma City bombing, and the parallels some felt uh, directly impacted ticket sales. Uh, the film grossed $5 million on a $6 million budget and has a 0% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It does have Chuck in it. I mean, you have to have. I feel like that. those are pillars of his career. If you didn't have any of those things in that, it would have not been a Chuck Norris movie. Uh, well, remember when I texted you a couple nights ago and I said I was watching something awful? That's what it That's was. That's what okay, it was. Got <laughs> gotcha. All right, Man Crush, what did you bring for the movies round? All right, first off, since we're doing movies, I just want to start out by saying Taylor flipped a blockbuster tape. Was that your blockbuster tape for the last blockbuster? Yes, sir. That's the the VHS tape that we made for the movie that we took around while filming and showed to everybody as, as you see in the movie. And then after we finished the movie, I recorded it onto that tape. So it's it's a one of a that, kind. It's been touched by Kevin Smith. <laughs> that is wild. And now it's been flipped on this show. Awesome. Yep. All right. So, uh, all right, let's go to movies. So we're going to go June 14th of 1985 and somehow this is the third time this year that i've selected this director of all the directors we choose from each week it is amazing to me that larry cohen is the dude that i recall picking on three separate occasions i picked him once for uh the 1996 classic uncle sam and then the last time i think it was for his writing of maniac cop i think like maybe a couple months ago i can't remember what the second one was but it was definitely there either way I wish I had, I, I wish the show had some kind of like stats person so we can keep track of all this kind of shit, but whatever. I just rewatched this, this movie a couple weeks ago. It's a solid horror comedy. Matter of fact, this is another one of those movies that you'd always see the cover of when you went to the rental store. Like you'd always bypass this movie. I recall passing this for years. And then I finally rented it when I was in high school, which is probably the, for the best because I would not have understood the underlying stuff in this movie. So right from the get-go on this one, New World Pictures, they hated this movie. When they initially brought Larry Cohen on to do this one, they wanted a straight-up horror movie, and instead they got more of a, like a satirical horror movie. And in spite of that, like the movie only received like limited theater release. And although like New World, they wanted a real horror movie, Cohen wanted to make a movie that shined a light on a uh, corporate greed and consumerism in the United States. This is 1985 after all, but he was specifically focusing around the news of, about all these various products that were pulled from shelves because they were hazardous. I mean, shit's been going on forever. There's, I forgot what product it was, but if you go back on YouTube and look up like commercials of the fifties, there's some crazy shit like kids eating asbestos and shit like that. Like it's <laughs> cereal. Um, so it's been going on forever. So if you're a fan, speaking of food, if you're a fan of desserts, junk food, thick, white, fluffy goo, parasitic organisms, peer pressure, Paul Servino and uniforms, kids who eat shaving cream due to taste shit coming out of the ground and the strangest trio of heroes in cinematic history, which is a child, an industrial saboteur and a marketing executive, then the movie, the stuff is right up your alley. Go see that. That came out June 14th, 1985. Larry Cohen classic. 
All right, guys. So for my movie selection, I wanted to do something a little different here on the show than we've done before. Since we're doing a B-movies battle and, you know, we have the director here from the last blockbuster, I thought it only would be fitting for me to give my pick solely based on the back of the VHS box. So I got this title here that I used to see all the time at Blockbuster. It's a film that when it comes to B-movies, this is in the upper echelon of B-films. Now, this one has achieved cult status. So let's look at the back of this VHS box. Gives us the tagline, There's nothing more frightening than a little boy's nightmare until it turns real. The terror returns in this horrifying sequel. One little boy's nightmare becomes a hellish reality when no one believes his warnings about the evil that is coming to destroy his family. Young Joshua enters a world of darkness where witches brew their spells and evil trolls deliver them. Only through his belief in himself can Joshua fight the malevolent creatures of the night and save his family. I give you the all-time cult classic Troll 2, released October 12, 1990. Man, this is a bad movie in all the good ways. You can just rewatch this movie today. In no way does any of it hold up to contemporary filmmaking, but that's what's great about it. It's schlocky goodness, and they, they made a sequel to the movie Troll. Well, not really. What they did is they made a film called Goblin and said, oh, wow, look, the goblins in this look just like the trolls that were in the movie Troll. Let's just call this Troll too." The rest is history. It's actually gone on to have a documentary made about it as well called The Best Worst Movie. It's absolutely fantastic. I highly recommend checking it out. And out of all the things in this film that you could pick out, the one thing I'm going to pick out that makes absolutely no sense, and I got to put my foot down, is the fact that the goblins in this film, of course, because there are no trolls anywhere, they're all goblins, uh, they're, they're vegetarians. But they take people... And turn them into vegetables to eat them. But isn't that just like eating the people? No, it's that's like me. Like I've been a vegan for the last two months, and everything that I eat is just fake food. Right, but you're not going to turn a cow into a plant and then eat the cow. No, but I'd eat a fake cow. Okay, it was made out of like some plant shit. I don't even know what's in the stuff I eat. <laughs> so that's what I'm bringing for the movies round. It's Troll 2. Wow. God, you have the sweet spot, dude. 90s like the sweet spot. Yeah, there were so many great schlocky films that came out in 1990. All right, but let's find out what our celebrity guest judge, Taylor Morden, has to say for the movies round. Those were all some really great movie picks. Um I have seen none of them. <laughs> but based off the descriptions, I mean, yeah, and I've seen the covers of all of these in the in the video stores, except maybe the Chuck Norris one. I don't don't remember seeing him on a VHS box with a dog, which I assume is what the cover is. That is exactly like. what it looks like. Yeah. With a giant yeah. police badge on it, right? Yep. Yeah, and yeah. and it's like he's got Benji with him because yeah. <laughs> you know, that's how they sold you on this neo-Nazi family-friendly movie. They put Benji there instead of a, you know, a fucking Doverman or something. I love that. I love that. I want to see that very badly. Do you though? But I also really don't want to see it, you know. It's, it's your uh, next documentary. My next doc, second best worst movie. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Um I have seen the documentary about Troll 2, and that is some fascinating shit right there. 
um, boy, the way they made terrible movies back in the day. And they spent so much money. Would you say $6 million on the Chuck Norris guy? Yeah. Wow. I can't get anybody to give me any money to make movies. <laughs> and somebody gave them $6 million. What was What was your budget <laughs> on the documentary? I don't think we're supposed to say, but it was less than 100000 Wow. So 160th of that Chuck Norris movie. And it was way better than the Chuck Norris movie. <laughs> I don't know. haven't seen it. Um, but it's... Uh, Man, that's tough. Um, so I think just based off of having seen the documentary, I got to give it to Troll too, because I've seen more of it. It's more, it's the most absurd, even though the stuff is very uh, iconic. I think that cover, that box cover, yeah. I walked past it a hundred times, but I think when it was on the shelves, I was too young to be allowed to rent anything like that. I remember so. our local place had the stuff. It was in horror, but I remember it having a comedy sticker on it. So I think that's why I never actually watched it. Yeah. Until I was older. Like I remember it was like that this green sticker. Remember how they would just like stick it to the front of all the freaking covers. And I remember that thing right above like where the dude's mouth was open and stuff. But it is a great movie though. If you haven't seen the stuff, go check out the stuff. Uh, these are all on my immediate to watch list now. <laughs> Maybe I'll come back with a second second opinion, but for now, I'm going with Troll 2. All right. Well, I pick up a point in the first round, but more importantly, I get to control the board and select our next category. Uh, gentlemen, let's go to the news round. So for my news selection, we're going to go over to the Orlando Sentinel, April 27th, 1990. In an article that talks about the very first movie to receive an S rating. First there was Frankenstein, and then there was The Bride of Frankenstein, and then there was Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Now, the movie that will still be grossing us out 20 years from now, no, I'll go further than that. This is the movie that is more disgusting than Let Me Die a Woman, the 1978 classic showing actual surgical footage of a man being turned into a woman. You've heard about it. Here it is, a perfect 100 on the vomit meter. I'm talking about Frankenhooker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know this is a big fan favorite of Man Crush here and Mike Ranger, so I had to go with the classic Frankenhooker. So what happened with this one is when they submitted the movie to the MPAA ratings board, the head honcho over there called them up, he was the head of distribution, and he said, I'm going to re- I'm gonna do you guys a favor. I'm going to rewind your film and send it back to your office and return your check for your screening film. And then we're both going to act like this never happened because we don't have an S rating over here. And he said, what do you mean S rating? S for sexy? It wasn't sexy. He was talking about the film should be rated S for shit. Wow. So, yeah, that's the very douche. first film that they ever said should be rated S for shit. Frankenhooker. And they wrote this in a newspaper? Yes. They didn't say wow. shit. They just said it would be something else. But yeah, it was shit. I looked it up. That is not a shitty movie. That was a great movie. Yeah, I like that, that movie. Scene. And I like the whole promotions behind it. You know, like the box that has the, you know, the voices on it. And... Oh, it's so good. That's we, a... we saw that in 35 millimeter with the original print of that. And it was had me totally hooked. Yeah, it's a good one, man. Yeah, it seems like such a tease, though, because she doesn't even become Frankenhooker till over 50 minutes into the film. Who cares? 
<laughs> the whole movie is about like him searching for the body parts and putting everything together and like making the plan, dude. You know what's funny? It's just like I wonder what they said about like his follow ups, like to like Basket Case Two and Basket Case Three, because those are fucking awful. Like those yeah. are like hard to watch. Like the first one I like a lot. But the- I don't know how they can say that that's a shitty movie. I've seen way. I think it's a good movie, but I've seen way, way, way worse movies that I wouldn't even label shit. All right, Man Crush, what did you bring for the news round? All right, so let's go to March 29th, 1985. Here's an article from the New York Times, and it's entitled, really boring article. It says, uh, film sales abroad hit by a strong dollar. Uh, The strength of the American dollar has hurt sales in the American movies abroad, just as it's hurt sales of American tractors and soybeans, a fact made obvious at the recent annual American film market held here in Hollywood. Attendance at the market where producers go to hawk their films was filled with independent producers representing such titles as Fraternity Vacation, Cave Girl, and Land of Doom, amongst others. Movies like these are vying for theatrical and video releases around the globe. However, buyers are being extremely cautious this year, where sales in Europe were down 17% and also down 8% in the Far East. Last year around this time, European currencies were worth 30 to 40% more than in 1985. So that year, buyers would, so in 1985, buyers would rather lose a movie to somebody else than overpay for it and lose a shit ton of money. So the article, it kind of goes on and on about all these foreign movie markets. They're backing away from these American movies. One example that they give in this article is Certain Fury was the name of the movie. And this is a movie that starred Tatum O'Neill and Irene Cara, I think was in the movie. It's got a 5.3 on IMDb with like less than 500 votes. And it's a movie by Stephen Gyllenhaal, Jake and Maggie's pop there. But uh, they weren't able to sell that one. This is what they're talking about here. They, they weren't able to sell the movie at the market, but they're saying in years prior that this movie would have been heavily competed for all over the place, whether that was for a theatrical release or for video stores. But the one thing that they do note in this article Although the like foreign studios, they weren't buying the Americans were. So basically all these movies that were historically generally made for the foreign market, they're all getting scooped up by these straight to video like rental distributors. So you remember that time period from the mid to late eighties where you can, we were talking about the stuff before, but you'd go to like your local Joe's video and there were like a ton of these oddball movies that you hadn't seen previously. This is why. They just these movies were made pretty much to be sold overseas. And now who's going to buy them? These rental stores are buying them, put on their shelves. So I thought it was kind of a it was a boring article to go through the whole thing, but it does make sense. And this thing, it had legs for the time. So that's what I got from my news article. All righty. Mike Ranger, what did you bring for the news round? Well, Mark, I uh, found an article from February 12th, 1995 in the Daily News titled Sheer pleasure. Look out. Rhonda Sheer is coming to Manhattan. Uh, the glitzy glam clean who uh, up until now has hosted the West Coast portion of the USA Network's Friday night B-movie series Up All Night will bring her act to New York starting May 12th. Uh, the past four years, Rhonda has been doing her duties on the left coast while comedian Gilbert Godfrey has hosted Saturday Up All Night, which he will continue to do. So, yeah, basically my story is Rhonda Shear switching from the West Coast coming to New York and uh, finishing out the pretty much the remainder of like she was on for another three years after that. Yeah, pretty much all from New York. 
and she just put out did you see that she uh started releasing stuff on her youtube with uh videos from up all night so she talked about it when she was on the show back in what like april or may or yep. whatever how she had those videos she actually started putting them on our youtube so go to her youtube if you want to check out all uh old usa up all night stuff all right let's throw it down to taylor morton for the verdict on the news round man that's a tough one um and honestly, Mark, I kind of forgot what yours was already. Because <laughs> <laughs> Mike and Man Crush had such great entries there. And it's always purely just based on me being like a, a teenager watching USA Up All Night over and over. You know, that was my uh, pubescent jam back then. Um, oh, yeah. But prior to that, Man Crush's article mentioned one of the VHS movies that was very, very formative for me, um, Fraternity Vacation from 85, was oh, wow. one of the first, if not the first, experience with boobs. You know, I was <laughs> eight, nine years old or something when I came across that tape. And um, yeah, I mean, I worked out that, that pause and rewind button over and over and over again, you know. <laughs> It was all beat up. It was ruined that tape, ruined that tape. So just like sitting here thinking back to like fraternity vacation and then USA up all night. That's like my entire love life until the age of 16. You know, well, thank God your love <laughs> life wasn't Frankenhooker. There you go. That's what you were talking about. Also very formative, but for different reasons and at a different time. Um, but because it was 1985 and because of the video store hook, I got to give it to Man Crush on this one. Because, you know, that it never occurred to me that they those straight to VHS movies were made for foreign markets. But that's of course they were. Right. And then when people didn't want to buy them, you know, we got all those. And 85 was the year Blockbuster Video opened. Yep. You know, that was the beginning of the end for the mom and pop stores and the beginning of it all for you know mass video rental chains all over the world. And uh, those movies, I mean, that's what was on the shelves because the big studios only put out you know whatever 12 movies a year back then and we needed content so here we got these absurd you know straight to vhs movies that clearly were intended to be only shown in dubai or something (laughs) don't worry nobody will ever see you naked we're gonna sell this in bangladesh nobody will ever see it and then fraternity vacations at like every rental store in the united states Yes, and has some of the scenes that I have seen the most of any movies ever. <laughs> That's fantastic. I didn't know that. that. It's so crazy when stuff like that happens. All right, Man Crush. Well, you pick up a point, tie up the game, but more importantly, you take control of the board heading into our final one-point round. All right, let's go. Uh, let's do television right here. I think it ties in good what we were just talking about. So let's go to January 5th of 1985. And before one of all... Like this, we've all said it now. One of our all time favorite shows, I think, for everybody here was on the USA Network. They had a similar show that was on the air for four seasons, just warming up the seat for uh, old Gilbert and Rhonda. I'm sure I wasn't the only one, but I was a very big USA fan back in the 80s and 90s. And I didn't realize this until I was doing the research a couple months ago, actually. But they literally had like everything that was in my wheelhouse. They had Rhonda Shear, like we talked about, they had wrestling obscure movies amazing i don't even know if it was original but programming like the renegade they had 
night flight, boxing, kung fu theater, Duckman. They literally had anything you can ask for, including this show, which featured the amazing Jim Hendrix, uh, whom they dressed up as like a bargain basement version of the comedian from The Watchmen. Uh, wow. They named him Commander USA. And uh, unlike Up All Night, this show would air during the day. I believe it came on around like 1 p.m. or something like that, but it would go on for a couple hours. They would play two amazing movies back to back. All of this while airing this from his secret headquarters under a New Jersey shopping mall, at least allegedly. But we get Commander USA's Groovy Movies. And you could always bet on getting like two awesome movies like back to back. And back in the mid to late 90s, if I couldn't get my parents to bring me to the video store for like whatever reason, or mid to late 80s rather, this was like my go-to. This is what I turned on. You know, and obviously I was a lot younger, so I didn't have up all night until 89. But over the course of 200 episodes, Commander USA, you could see movies like The Hearse, which I also had for a pick just over the summer, Curse of the Doll People, The Hills of Eyes 2, Toxic Zombies, Chud, uh, My Bloody Valentine, my all-time favorite on here, A Polish Vampire in Burbank. Uh, I mean, literally, this was like the B-movie hub on television until Up All Night kind of took over in 1989. Um, I do have an article here that it talks about this at length. But the one thing I do want to pick out of here, just one little spot, it says uh, the USA Network continues to impress as the home offbeat cult programming. It's pop culturist delight, a network whose programming mix includes Peyton's Place, a wrestling talk show, Hockey, The Gong Show, and now Commander USA's Groovy Movies, a Saturday afternoon series that is a must for all B-movie fans. So even the newspapers agreed with me back in 1985. You can't beat that. All right, Mike Ranger, what did you bring for the television round? Well, Mark, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to talk about B-movies without mentioning the, the great Roger Corman. And thankfully for me now and anyone who's alive in 1995, Showtime brought us Roger Corman Presents, a weekly series of 13 movies. Armed with 40 years of experience and a budget of $1.5 million per film, Corman's team developed all but one of the scripts in-house. And at Showtime's request, remade and updated two of his earlier films from the 1950s, The Wasp Woman and Not of This Earth. Found an article, quite fittingly actually, in the Sacramento Bee on July 9th, 1995, where Corman is excited about a bigger budget and a more time because he can build a bigger, better wasp, and that the original was shot in only nine days, and then this one would have much better special effects and it'd be far superior. Uh, the, the article is actually kind of slightly confusing, because if you do uh, look up the films that are in the first season, there are other remakes of some of his other films, like Piranha or Bucket of Blood. In total, there were two seasons and 30 episodes with the Roger Corman Presents banner continuing to release movies sporadically up until 1999. Uh, the series also featured the acting talents of the likes of Anthony Michael Hall and Richard Belzer. Uh, the, the first film aired on July 11th at 9.30. Uh, was called uh, Suspect Device. Um, yeah, so it's 1995, and Showtime and Roger Corman bring the drive-in to the small screen. Ooh, how many movies did you say it was? First season was 13. So I'm just going to fact check you. Was that 1.5 million in total for all 13 movies? Because that would sound like a Roger Corman. No, no, no. It's 1.5 per film. Wow. that's Imagine what Roger Corman could do with 1.5 million. Dude, he can film the fucking takeover of the Roman Empire with three guys in a bush. 
<laughs> you could do thirteen hundred movies. All right, guys. So for my television selection, uh, you know, this was a cartoon actually. That was one of the very first cartoons on the new Fox uh, Saturday morning lineup on the Fox Children's Network in the fall of 1990. And it almost wasn't even a show to begin with, except we have the Muppet Babies. Yes, the Muppet Babies to thank for this. And the reason we have the Muppet Babies to thank for this is because of Fozzie. He used to do this segment, I guess, on the Muppet Babies called the Weirdo Zone. And they did a, a parody called The Attack of the Silly Tomatoes. And it became one of the most popular episodes of Muppet Babies. Matter of fact, it became so popular that New World Pictures, owner of Marvel Productions and the Muppet Babies, approached Foursquare about making a sequel to the movie Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. And then, of course, they had to have a spinoff of that back into a cartoon. So the whole thing comes full circle. And in the fall of 1990, we got Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, the animated cartoon. So we'll go over to a uh, article in The Monitor in McAllen, Texas, October 23rd, 1990, in an article titled, It's 9 a.m., Do You Know What Your Kids Are Watching? And it goes through and it describes all the new cartoons starting in the new fall lineup. And then we get to Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, a bizarre cult film which does not translate too well into a cartoon. An evil scientist grows mutant tomatoes and hurls them at the residence of San Zucchini, the cartoon's producers tried to keep up with the movie's cynical tone, where the tomatoes are invading the city and they wreak havoc and lower property values. Basically, it's gentrification by vegetable. The TV show kind of strikes an odd note, but is strangely familiar. I always thought the animation style and voice style was very reminiscent of Ninja Turtles. Might have even have been done by the same production company. I don't know. That's what I'm bringing for the television round. The unlikely cartoon of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, based off the original 1978 cult film, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. So that's what I got for B-movies. Let's throw it down to Taylor Morton for the ruling on the television round. And again, guys, those are great, great polls. And that those Roger Corman movies, man, I, I've seen some of those movies, but I didn't have Showtime back then. I didn't know. You know, I didn't know they were on TV and the, the USA stuff. That's a little bit before my time. I'm sure I'm sure I've seen some of the movies that were on that show, but USA was already doing up all night by the time my family had cable. So <laughs> that's a little before my time. But uh, Mark, I was really hoping when you started that lead in with the, the cartoon, the Saturday morning cartoon we were headed towards a toxic crusaders yes that's what i was thinking yeah i was kind of hoping that too and i looked for all the toxic crusaders stuff but a lot yeah. of that was dated 91 so yeah oh. yeah they were probably working on it in 90 but uh god to think of what you know i was uh nine ten years old in 1990 and i watched the shit out of the killer tomatoes cartoon and the toxic crusaders cartoons probably two years later, I'm 12, 13. And I finally watched the movies that they're based on. And it was like, it was like a revelation. Like, Oh my God, what, what are they doing with these cartoons? It's, you know, they tried to do that with the Ninja Turtles movie, right? They made it darker and grittier, but it was after the cartoon. It was like based yep. on it. So it was, 
still PG-13 or PG probably. Um, but, you know, those movies, they're nothing like the cartoon. The cartoons, <laughs> are, they, it was a stretch to even name them the same thing. Right. right? Oh, Especially yeah. the Toxic Crusaders where it's just like, it's, you know, Captain Planet, but with Toxie and <laughs> it's, it's insane. And then the action figures too. And didn't they have Killer Tomatoes action figures based yeah, on the cartoon? Yeah, there's even in a Nintendo game. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It all because of Fozzie Bear from Muppet Babies. That's amazing. I had no idea. I love Muppet Babies too. Thanks, Muppet Babies. <laughs> well, they'll they'll uh, be there for you. So. <laughs> I thought the exact same thing when he first started that he was talking about Toxic Crusader and you had Lloyd Kaufman was in your documentary. Yeah. How was that? We've had Lloyd's been on the show. Well, he was on our old show like three times. Yeah. And we talked to him at length and I never seen him as heated. Although like some of the stuff that he brought up when he was talking to you about like uh, something to Redstone and stuff like that, he was pitching that back to us in like 2017 oh, yeah. when uh, something to Redstone was still alive. And he was telling us all about the sex tape and shit like that, uh, getting very heated about it. Yeah, yeah we had to bleep all that stuff. We, we had to bleep all that. And that's really, you know, we had like a 90 minute interview with him for the movie and we used about a minute and a half. And that was about all we could get away with. And I, you know, I love Uncle Lloyd. I, it was great hanging out with him. It was great before the interview, right up until we pushed record. Great guy. Just super fun. And we're talking about movies. Until you asked him to say his name. And then I'm like, <laughs> all right, we're making a movie. Tell everyone what your name is. And he's basically like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I, when I saw that, I was like. Yeah, our editor had the great idea to just leave that part in. Like, that's that's what you get with Lloyd. And I think it's great. He has more disdain for blockbuster video than anybody on this planet. So much so that people know, like he famously hates blockbuster. People keep giving him uniforms. So that little bit in our movie where he's wearing the blockbuster uniform and like welcoming you to his home. Yeah, he had that. That's just like, he was like, oh, we finished the interview and he said, Hey, I, I've got a blockbuster uniform. Do you want me to just wear it and we'll do a bit? Like, yeah, I want you to wear the uniform and we'll do a bit. Why? Where was this guy when we were doing the interview? You know? <laughs> oh my God. Did he go? He goes into character sometimes. Yes. We were talking to him and you don't know if he's being serious or if he's in character. And you're like, ah, oh, shit. We did, luckily, both times we spoke to him, one time was after the 2016 election. It was the day after. The oh, 2016 no. election. He was like, Mark was a big Hillary supporter, and he, he was just like, "Why?" Like, <laughs> why? he was just, he was going. It was funny. It was, uh, it was pretty hilarious. But he's a great guy, man. That guy can talk about all kinds of stuff, and he's very passionate about the things that he doesn't like. Yeah, and it's very entertaining to hear him talk about that stuff. So I think if uh, you're a fan of Lloyd, check this documentary out just for. I think it's like, a, I forgot what you guys said, like 112 seconds of Lloyd Kaufman or something like that. Yeah, I think it's 112 seconds with Lloyd. And they actually ran it. I think it's on Bloody Disgusting. They ran that as an exclusive <laughs> clip. So you can just check that out. And, and if that's fun, then check out the movie. But uh, yeah, Lloyd was great. And Toxic Crusaders, Toxic Avengers, that's that's my jam. But also Killer Tomatoes. Man, I got to give you the point on that one. That's those. Fucked up children's cartoons from 1990. Again, so important. Had so important. Rambo the and world. the Forces of Freedom. 
No, ah. man. <laughs> like, like what? Like where? Where is that now? Where's our like crazy adaptation? Where's like Midsummer, the children's cartoon? <laughs> you know. <Fantastic. laughs> yeah, you. But you can't do any of that now. Right. Like all that. That's all gone, man. You, I mean, unless you're gonna put it on YouTube, which it would probably get taken down in a week. Yeah. yeah. But uh, you know, it's it's rough. Back then, there was so much more freedom to do stuff like that. And it like we posted that on our Facebook page. And if anybody, if you haven't been there, I know we, we say it all the time, www.facebook.com forward slash dueling decades. And if you join our group, there's, I don't know, like another almost 14,000 people in the group. And they they always post stuff like that. And somebody posted the other, I, th- I think we did. We posted uh, some Rambo and the Forces of Freedom cartoon. And somebody made the comment like, how the hell did they make a cartoon for a movie that we weren't even allowed to watch. Yeah. A lot of them. A lot of them though. Yeah. Fantastic. With the days. All right. So I pick up another point heading into the first two point rounds and I get to select the category. Um, you know what? Let's do some hot products. All right. So for my pick for hot products, I picked a magazine that, you know, you could commonly find in a blockbuster or any video rental store or video sales store, really. Uh, journalist Tim Lucas launched The Video Watchdog as an article series in October of 1985 when it became the first consumer guide to home video releases in the pages of Video Times magazine. So, of course, Man Crush could have picked this for the same category. But then in June 1990, Tim's column was reborn as its very own magazine called Video Watchdog. It was subtitled the Perfectionist Guide to Fantastic Video. This magazine was an immediate success with anybody who collected old films, VHS, or just movie lovers in general. Uh, the pages of Video Watchdog, you could find interviews and celebrity guest columnists, as well as pieces written on all walks of cult cinema, from movies like Blade Runner and Twin Peaks to Metropolis and the Universal Monsters and the classic Hammer horror films as well. Yeah, you would also find groundbreaking interviews with people like Vincent Price, Oliver Stone, the aforementioned Roger Corman, David Cronenberg, Clive Barker, makeup legend Dick Smith, and even Quentin Tarantino sat down for an interview. All that aside, Video Watchdog is probably best known for the outstanding film reviews and critiques that it had over the 27 years of the magazine's run. So that's what I'm picking for my hot products round. It's Video Watchdog Magazine. Very first issue coming out June in 1990. All right, Man Crush, what did you bring for the hot products round? All right, so let's go to May of 1985. You guys are going to have to follow me a little bit on this one, but this delivered directly to your rental store, this movie right here, for allegedly the first time ever. Because we talked about this earlier, all the studios, they were, they were taking charge of their own distribution. And this began to weigh on, like really heavily on these smaller distributors around the world. So one of those distributors was a small company called United Entertainment out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. I never say that too much. Nothing happens in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But United Entertainment, they were having a hard time getting any movies that they could distribute at the time. So this guy, his name is Bill Blair. He gets in touch with a filmmaker named Christopher Lewis to see if they, he could put together something, possibly create a movie that he could distribute. 
So Chris Lewis said, okay, sure, we can make a movie. And Bill Blair from United Entertainment handed Chris the script for a horror movie called Blood Cult that he had actually co-written with a, a doctor that lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So basically, like, this is how it breaks down. He's like, hey, I still have all these connections to home video stores around the country, but I have nothing to sell them. So you create this movie for me, and I'll have something I could sell these stores. So since this was pretty much the first time this had ever been done, and I looked pretty hard. I looked very hard. Outside of porn, this might actually be the first direct-to-video movie ever created. So he's like, let's keep this super cheap. Budget was 25 k and let's also make it a horror movie because right now, 1985, they're uber popular. We can pretty much do anything. We'll, we'll get it out there. So they went down to Tulsa, Oklahoma, just like uh, Roger Corman. They shot Blood Colt in all nine days using uh, dual video cameras, beta cameras, video cameras. So it looks like a soap opera. It's like one of those, right? When it was all said and done, the movie actually it made around half a million dollars in profit. And that's according to Chris Lewis, the director. And I actually found an article about the movie. It was from September of 1985 in the New York Daily News that claims that they sold 15,000 copies in just that, what is that, three-month period, four-month period, for $59.95 each. So just quick math right there. It's like $900,000 roughly in three months of being available. And that would, it would equate, like now in 2020, that's like $150 a cassette, by the way. Um, but also, these numbers, these strictly sales figures for those four months. This article from September states that the video was debuting at rental stores the following day. So this movie, for twenty five grand, they put it out there. They made their money back. They made a lot of money. Uh, movie's total pile of shit. Uh, so if that's your kind of scene, I would totally suggest going to find a copy. Now, if, if you want to watch it for pure comedy, that I would suggest. If you just want to save time, though, go to YouTube and search for this. Just put Blood Cult Cafeteria Scene. If you could watch that, it's like two-minute, three-minute clip. If you could watch that scene and get through it and think it's funny and think it's good, then go ahead and watch the entire movie. If you don't, then don't bother with it. But here's some weird shit about this, this whole movie and the production. So usually, Taylor, I'm sure you did the same thing. When you have a movie, you test it. You know, you do like a private screening, right? Did you do a private screening for your movie? Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is what they did. Uh, Unit, United Entertainment, they found a homeless dude that was sleeping. Uh, and this is in Tulsa. He was sleeping against a dumpster. So the production coordinator sat down next to the guy and said, hey, buddy, hey, buddy, get a load of this. And he pulls a decapitated head out of a shopping bag and the guy freaks the fuck out and starts, he just runs away. That right there was good enough for them as their screen test. They're like, oh, it works. He, he liked it. Uh, little PS there. The homeless dude did come back allegedly 15 minutes later with a friend of his and asked to see the head again. So obviously it worked. The second great bit of this United entertainment, they actually did this slasher movie to raise money to expand the business of United Entertainment, but what were the, what was their business that they were trying to get it to push videos out for? Religious Christian videos. <laughs> That's uh, that that was what they they made this slasher film so they can get a budget so they can do more religious movies. And then the last bit, uh, Chris Lewis, who was the director, he actually squirms at the sight of blood, so he had to look away while all the kills were being taped. I mean, what could go wrong? <laughs> 
the director of your movie, he can't even watch the kill scenes. He's directing. I mean, anyway, whatever. It's it's Blood Cult, the first ever straight to video movie, right to your video store, and it looks it, but it's uh, it's a pretty big deal. All right, let's toss it down to Mike Ranger. What did you bring, man? Well, before we get started, Mark, uh, let me ask you, uh, what do you think the uh, farmer said to the uh, vegetable garden wearing uh, yoga pants? I don't know. I can see your tomato. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Actually, I like when this happens, like when we're, you know, sometimes we're we're five years apart and something that somebody else talked about kind of kicks its way around to me and I'm five years. This actually relates to something you talked about, Mark. And I'm in 1995, and I found a, a segment in the Palm Beach Post on September 5th, 1995, titled, It's the End of the World, and These are the Latest Developments in the Continuing Decline of Civilization. The director's cut of the 1978 schlock classic, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, goes on sale Wednesday <laughs> for only $12.99. It includes a free grow-your-own genuine killer tomatoes seed packet. Uh, this was compiled by Ron Hayes. Um, the director's cut restored cut scenes, jokes, and dialogue, but also deletes some scenes. Uh, the 1978 parody film about tomatoes revolting against humanity, much like Hitchcock's birds. Um, and it's pretty much a spoof on uh, B-movies. But uh, yeah, personally, I actually prefer the uh, Return of the Killer Tomatoes and the cartoon to the first one. Yeah. But, you know, you ever you ever get a hand job to puberty love? <laughs> What's incredible of, about Attack of the Killer Tomatoes is that predates Airplane by two years. Yeah, they've come a long way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All righty, let's toss it down to Taylor Morton for the judgment on the hot products round. Wow. Guys, again, crazy shit. Crazy shit. I mean, uh, Movie Magazine is great and it's been around forever, but that first straight-to-video movie i mean that's yeah that's bananas and i kind of want to watch it just out of the curiosity of like once upon a time you could make nine hundred thousand dollars off a twenty five thousand dollar severed head movie and that uh that's inspiring you know <laughs> i'm, I'm making movies for the... roughly today's version of twenty five thousand dollars and they, they I, even I, did that and got a sequel out of this that's they, they didn't call it blood cult too they named it something else but it was a sequel and they also did the Ripper in I think '87 off the money that they made from this off the profits. So they didn't just make like 50 more movies off the money. <laughs> no, you would think they probably should have, but they fucked up. Yeah, it was Blood Cult Two, Electric Boogaloo. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> but that was at that time, right? When a VHS tape was you said 59.99, and that was cheap. Yeah. You know, the big studio movies were 100, 110 bucks because they didn't want people to own them. They only wanted right. the rental stores to own them. So, like, what is that in today's money? Like, what would I have to charge for a copy of my movie on VHS to come close? Like, 200, 300 dollars. It's ridiculous. What year did I know you guys mentioned this in the documentary, but what year did the rev share start? Was that 85? No, it couldn't have been 85. No, no, because. Blockbuster started in 85. It was, we didn't actually mention the year that RevShare started, but it was early on, I think probably late 80s, like 88, 89. Because it's it's a big contributing factor to how Blockbuster took over. 
right. you know, how they became what they were because no one could afford to have a hundred copies of any movie because they were so expensive. But if you had a deal with the studios, you know, and, and Lloyd Kaufman will rant and rave about this for hours if you let him, but yep. it, I mean, it was some shady shit. Like they, they just sure. like Blockbuster got their movies for two ninety nine and split the profits with the studios and every mom and pop store had to pay the fifty nine ninety nine per copy. So they and that's why the local store only ever had one copy of, you know, anything of right. airplane. And then the rentals the Blockbuster would have fifty or a hundred copies and they didn't have to pay for them. And so that's just not fair. You know, that that's one of the things that you guys went over. I hope I'm not spoiling too much either. And if you're into this kind of thing, you want to see the whole documentary anyways. But one of the things that happened, uh, the main the main character of the documentary there, uh, what's her name? Sandy. The whole part where she's going out and she's buying her stock from stores and, and things like that. Yeah. Who's paying for it? She's paying for all that stuff out of pocket. Like, I'm not. Yeah. entirely clear how the whole thing she's paying for all that yeah there's no um so this, the store that we follow was an independent video store that got kind of uh forced into becoming a blockbuster they got their own twisted you know like you're going to be a franchise or we're going to open the store next door and put you out of business um so they've always been and it's the same family that ran it then that runs it now um but it's now that corporate is gone, you know, spoiler alert, Blockbuster's out of business. Everybody knows that. But they they don't get any support. They're still using these old computers. You know, the, their operating system is on a floppy disk and there is no updated version. And everybody, you know, gives gives them a hard time. Like, why don't you just use iPads or whatever? And, and A, that ruins it, right? You don't want to go into Blockbuster and see somebody on an iPad. But B, they would lose their database. There's no way to transfer it over. You know, except hiring some kid to like type in every customer's number and like everything they've rented. Uh, so that's never going to happen. Um, but there is no corporate support now. So it's just Sandy really going out and buying the movies. And actually, since our movie came out during the pandemic, their last couple of distributors who used to bring them their DVDs have gone out of business or at least stopped distributing due to COVID. So now, she used to get, you know, some of the movies would come through a distributor, like, uh, I don't know, the Marvel movies or something, like right. James Bond or whatever was coming out. But now it's literally every movie on Tuesday mornings at 5 a.m. when the movies come out, she drives over to Walmart and they know her. You know, they know it's for Blockbuster, so they limit. They're like, you can't buy 20 copies. You can buy five copies. And then she has to go to Target, buy five more. And she has to go to the other Target in the next town over and buy five more. And that's how they fill up their new release wall now. And it's it's like this crazy small business. You know, Blockbuster is now a small business run by this one family and this one woman who's stocking the shelves all by herself. It's so incredible. The one thing I was thinking about the whole time while I was watching it is how does she stay open? Like, because I, I don't know what Bend, Oregon is like. Like, are you guys far away from everything where you have to rent videos and there's no, like there's no good internet or something. No. So it's just people going there because they like to rent videos. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and you know, over the years it's become this tourist destination too. So right. they were kind of barely staying afloat just on locals and it is a big tourist town. So a lot of people will come, they go skiing. 
uh, it's a ski town or they'll hang out in the summer and float down the river or something. And they'll stay like at an Airbnb and maybe the Airbnb has a DVD player. Oh, there's a blockbuster. My Google map says there's a blockbuster in town. Let's go check that out. So they do rent movies to tourists and to locals for sure. But now it's become this, this, uh, tourist destination it's on like the city bike tour if you come here and you know drink a beer and ride around town and they're like here's our there's our old mill and there's our you know city hall and there's our blockbuster video <laughs> it's, like, I, it's crazy do you think i mean you did all the research for this you did the documentary do you think that there's a market for this like there's enough people out there that would i think i would i think mike and i have talked about this before like I totally would go because I, I miss it. I miss the whole experience of it. Not so much as just picking a movie out, but just the hour of walking around and debating with whoever you're with. Like, what about this one? No, that's shit. What about this one? You know, like just, it was, it was date night Yeah. to just go there. I mean, it sounds lame to the, our young audience who didn't live through that, but for everybody else who was that age, that, that's what we did. That's what we went out. It was like, Oh, Friday night, what are you going to do? You have a girlfriend, we're going to go to Blockbuster. We're going to go rent yep. some videos. Do you think now that it, that would come back? Like there's enough people that would keep these stores afloat. I, I'm I'm not putting this all on your shoulders. So now all these people are going to go out and open them. But like, what do you think? Like, do you think there's enough people? I, I do and I don't. I, people like to compare it to record stores because record stores have had this huge resurgence and now vinyl is outselling CDs for the first time, you know, since the 70s and right that's all well and good but people interact with movies differently than music in, in my opinion i think it is so hard for uh, video stores to compete with the convenience of a netflix and amazon prime or hulu you know torrents piracy whatever however you get your movies even netflix discs through the mail um which a lot of people still do which i found out recently um it's it's so hard to compete with that for this mom and pop video store. And it all across the country, mom and pop video stores have been closing steadily since, you know, 2000, 2005, when they were at the peak. And it's hard for me to imagine that there would be a resurgence, that there would be more of them. Like that someone's going to open a new video store in 2022 right. or whenever we can. Yeah. Open yeah. New stores. Good point. Uh, but at the same time, it's hard for me to imagine a world where we don't have video stores, right? Because like you're saying, it's not about the movie. I don't really care what movie I end up watching. It's that experience. You know, and everybody we talked to for the movie had these same, you know, fond memories of going to a video store and picking out a movie like with their family, with their girlfriend or boyfriend, or, you know, with their kids when they got older and all these things that, when that goes away, I think we're going to have a different relationship to movies that really bums me out. Like there are people now, grown ass people who can vote and buy alcohol and cigarettes who have never experienced a movie as a physical object. To them, it's always so been inside of a device. It's always been at the push of a button. And then when Netflix takes the movie away, that movie just disappears. It never existed at all. That I think is what we're going to lose as a society, like this, <laughs> I mean, it makes me sound like an old cranky guy who's just complaining about about progress. Yeah, but I think I think you're right. I don't think it is progress though, because 
you're taking away a social aspect of life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you're, you're replacing that with sitting on your couch and just flipping, you know, hitting a button 500 times until you find something to watch on Netflix or Amazon prime. Right. Whereas, you know, you would walk around these places and look at the cover art, pick it up. And it was a whole experience. You'd have your, your friends with you or your, you know, your girlfriend, loved one, whatever. We're not going to have that anymore. And now, you know, there might be a time in the next five years where movie theaters aren't even around anymore. Five months. Yeah. Or five months. I'm just waiting for somebody for like the Oculus Rift or something to design an overlay for Netflix. So when you're picking a movie, it looks like you're walking around a video store and you can pick up the movies and read the back of the box. And Are they going to add the smell? That'll happen. <laughs> somebody will do that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm waiting for it, man. It's an experience, though. I think like where we're headed also is now that where you have the ability to watch movies at your fingertips and you no longer have to actually get up, go spend the hour in the store, find the thing, you know, you came home with that movie, you watched it, whether it was good or bad. Yep. Yep. Now you're treating it almost like the way you consume music now, where you don't listen to the whole album. You can skip around, you know, you know, like yep. it's like, I, I like the difference between going from a vinyl to a cassette, to a CD, to where we are now with, with digital, like things are so disposable now. So if you turn on a Netflix movie and it sucks in the first 10 minutes, you just go to the next thing. There's no skin in the game. How many awful B movies like that we all love that, you know, a lot of those movies, they're, they're low budget and there's genius in there, but you just got to find it. You know, like there's some like director that, you know, like you get your James Camerons and your Joe Dantes and, and these guys that are able to, to take nothing and turn it into to something. That's exactly right. That you think about how we make movies now and how it's made for this audience. Like there are way more filmmakers than there ever have been. But now there's this rule, like you got to put everything into the first eight minutes of the movie, because if it doesn't hook people in, they're gone. Yep. Cause they didn't pay for that movie. They didn't walk to the video store. They didn't, you know, there's, they're not invested. Nobody, cares like it's not exciting that it's a movie it has to be like oh my god it had all the cool things in the first five minutes so now i'll watch the whole thing and you're right like people aren't going to watch movies that aren't you know quote unquote good and we're going to lose out on on so much so many movies that we watched in the 80s and 90s that were terrible that have these cult followings now, you know, like, can you imagine if, if an evil dead came out now and it just went straight to streaming and it would just flop and no yep. one would watch it. And because there's so many equally low production value movies out there that nobody would even talk about it. And then we would go into the future 30 years later and there'd just be no evil dead franchise. Oh, it's so crazy. That's kind of like when, Andre Gower was on a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about the monster squad documentary and, and monster squad and everything else. I always thought growing up, the monster squad was a huge movie and he had to tell me, he's like, no dude, it was not, I mean, obviously through research, I knew it wasn't, but he's like, yeah. it wasn't. And people didn't come back to it until the two thousands. Like, is that what we're in store for now? Like people are going to release a movie and it's going to be good and nobody's going to discover it for 30 years. Well, and how do you discover it? Because at least before, and in in, in when we were walking through Blockbuster, or in my case, you know, a Video Ranger, how many times did you just rent it just on the cover alone? Oh, like, they don't even awesome. put the effort awesome. into the covers anymore. Nope. You know, we've gotten away, and you really do see that as you 
exit the 80s and go into the 90s to where we are getting into more of a corporate machine and movies are no longer allowed to fail and they have to do these things that where if you look back in the 80s like you you don't get a Howard the Duck in any other era you know or a fucking garbage pail kids yeah. movie or some shit like that <laughs> classic well netflix yeah. is getting that way though now cuz they're releasing so much shit on netflix that even their new stuff i couldn't tell if it, knew, it was new or old or if they made it, if they bought it from the BBC, I have no idea. They add so much stuff on there, it's impossible to see it all. And I think it's easier, to your point, Mike, you could walk around a store and look at all this, you know, different uh, boxes and whatnot. When you're on Netflix, everything's in different categories. Yeah, right. So how long are you going to flip for before you find something? And it's almost more annoying to to flip through movies like that. It's like, yeah. oh, Jesus, they're not. They've taken the adventure out of it, you know? Yeah. yeah. Like, I actually remember being in college and my fucking one crazy friend got like three grand from his grandmother on his 21st birthday and he went and spent that $3,000 on DVDs. This is, this is 1999, 2000. I told you not to tell anybody about that. Dude, it was, I, I'll never forget it. And me and him would stand there and that $3,000 only got him about 150 DVDs. Oh, God. Fucking, and we would stand there and we would just try to pretend like we were in a fucking store and like pick them out. Oh, it's run one, get one free night. <laughs> I'm going to do that with my basement. I'm going to take all those movies and put them in aisles. Should. Dude, I'd love to do that. I'll give you a card. You can come over and rent. Nice. But I'll charge you late fees. Oh, well, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> you know what else we lose when we don't have physical media? There's great gimmicks, like when they included a package of seeds in the Killer Tomatoes re-release in the 90s, which I actually remember... I'm almost positive that my older brother had those seeds and he could have just got some seeds from a garden store, told me they were killer tomato seeds because <laughs> I was a dumb kid. He used to trick me like that. He told me hoverboards were real and I bought it for a long time. Um, but yeah, I was going to give the, the winning point on this round to Mike on the, on the killer tomatoes because I'm nothing if not consistent. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. All right, Mike, you pick up a couple of points in that round. You're on the board heading into the final music round. Ooh, it's anybody's game right now. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Mark. Um, so, yeah, I guess we're going to go with uh, music because that's all that's left, and that's what you just announced anyway. So, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm rambling. Uh, but uh, on March 28th, 1995, the original soundtrack for the major motion picture, Tank Girl, was released. The Courtney Love assembled album has a nearly 42-minute runtime. This neon punk comic book film has a soundtrack companion that Janet Weeks of the Los Angeles Daily News calls girl rock heaven and also features who weeks calls the most talked about bands like veruca salt bush belly and of course courtney loves hole with a few exceptions most of the bands are fronted by a woman providing a feminist theme running throughout the album which does make sense in a sci-fi comic book movie featuring a female heroine Adam Leary, who served as music producer on the album, said he and love made no conscious effort to choose woman on a woman artist other bands featured on the album are Devo, L7, The Magnificent Bastards, Ice-T, and a collaboration with Joan Jett and Paul Westerberg. The soundtrack peaked at number 72 on the Billboard 200, but while New York Magazine wrote that the soundtrack was getting more attention than the film, Ron Howard of Tower Records stated that the album sales were disappointing and blamed the poor performance on the film. Uh, just in case anybody doesn't know, uh, Lori Petty plays Tank Girl, and it's about a girl in a tank who fights for water. Wow. Before Waterworld. Before yeah. Waterworld, yes. 
Yeah, that was, that had a pretty good soundtrack to it. I remember the opening title sequence was a really cool cover, but then they didn't put it on the soundtrack. I was kind of bummed with that. Yeah, I think there's like four, four or five songs that appear in the movie that aren't on the soundtrack. Yeah. I hate when that happens. They fucking got me when I bought my Revenge of the Nerds soundtrack. I remember that that movie had an odd release date. Uh, the, you know, when movies are gigantic, they'll put them out on a Wednesday. Yeah. I'm almost positive that they put Tank Girl out on a Wednesday. Oh, good move. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> good no. move. Yeah. You know, I mean, well, at that time, you know, Lori Petty was in a league of her own. <laughs> oh, I got it. <laughs> All right, Man Crush, what did you bring for the music round? All right, so let's go to July 26th of 1985. And when I drew 1985 for this episode, I knew exactly what I had for music without even having to look this one up. This is one of my favorite 80s movies that HBO seemed to play this one like three times a day for an entire decade, or at least part of the decade because it came out in 85. I probably watched it every damn time it was on, too. For not a very large movie, they did have quite... I would say it's a perfect soundtrack. It's great. It fits this movie perfectly. It's not filled with a lot of household names, but the music fits. It fits perfectly. And I can probably recite each one of these songs. So when I read them, we'll, we'll see what happens there. But at the box office, this movie, it didn't do too well. Uh, that's why I categorize this as a B movie. It had a theatrical release. It was probably out in theaters for like two weeks. It only grossed around $3.8 million. But again, this movie, it found its legs on cable TV and the video store. This stars a 30-year-old Lewis Smith playing a deceased high school kid. And all that, like, I watched this again last night, and I'm really not sure. I've seen this, like, 50 times at least. Is he supposed to be? Hold on. I'll, let me. So I'm talking about uh, the Jason Gedrick classic, of course, the heavenly kid here. But is he supposed to be in high school? Who? Bobby. Bobby, yeah, at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, they're yeah. in high school. Well, I mean, he dies driving off a cliff. Spoiler. But, like, you don't know exactly that he's in high school, but I'm guessing that he's in high school. Yeah, he's a 50s greaser. Yeah, he's like a 50. All right, so that's the yeah. other thing. Like, the timeline of this movie is so shoddy. Oh, I was hoping that you were going to get there. <laughs> Dude, the synopsis of this movie, it claims that Bobby dies in the 60s. He does. I think it's 1960, but I don't know why he's listening to Jerry Lee Lewis, because I think that song yeah. was like three years old at that time. Yep. And like you said, he's clearly like a greaser. So, like, even if we give him the benefit of the doubt and we say that it's like early 60s, how the fuck can Lenny be his son in 1985? <laughs> Even if he died in 1965, that would make Lenny 20 years old and he's in high school. I mean, it's the 80s, so like... Well, it is Lenny, so... Yeah, Lenny's a little <laughs> weird. All right, so even if he is 20 and failed two times, there's no way that that opening scene was 1965. It's one of those things with this movie, but it's the 80s, so continuity and you know, time continuity, that doesn't really matter. Who cares? So let's look at the uh, the soundtrack for this fantastic movie. Begins off, you got Heartless. You know the scene where he's got like the uh, the chick that he goes on the date with. Um, and then the best song in this whole album. There's tons of great songs in this one, but I don't even know how to say his name. John Fiore? Is that his name? John Fieri? Fiore, but the, yeah, I think. It's the Heavenly Kid song, Out on the Edge. <laughs> See how this one? On my way, well, want to be, got to stay. 
Out on the edge. It's the fucking greatest goddamn song from an eighties movie ever. You and they play it. It's like a canon movie. They play that shit like ten times well, they throughout the, the hour and twenty six minutes of that song. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, like you mentioned before, Jerry Lee Lewis is probably the most notable name on this whole thing. But some great songs on here, man. Like Cruising Tonight, where they're driving in the car for the first time and they just pick up chicks at a bar. But then when you realize that Bobby is not really in the back seat, it's just two chicks. So Lenny actually picks up three girls to go driving with, which is weird. Animal Attraction. There's so many of these. And I'm not going to sing every single one of them because. I don't want our numbers to go that crazy, but um, <laughs> that's what I got. I got the soundtrack for the Heavenly Kid. Wow, fantastic soundtrack! I was a huge nice. fan of that movie. Oh, it's fucking amazing! I might watch it again tonight. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so for my pick for the music round, much like Man Crush, this was a film I grew up watching on repeat, nonstop, because it was on either HBO or Showtime constantly. Now, with only a $2.5 million budget, this movie made $26 million. And despite being released on only a mere 700 screens, this film became a cult classic. It had two sequels, launched the career of its stars, and, as my pick, had one absolutely banging soundtrack. That happened to be released March 9th, 1990, the exact same day the film was released. This album was one of the albums that introduced me into hip-hop, and it became a staple in my Walkman for years. My pick for the music round, the original motion picture soundtrack for the movie, House Party, with Kid and Play. Absolutely fantastic soundtrack. Of course, Kid and Play have two songs on it. Uh, they have Fun House, and then they have the Kid versus Play rap battle, which is featured in the movie, which might be one of the first songs I ever memorize line for line and word for word but let's look at the track listing for the rest of this album you got why you getting funky on me by today what a feeling by arts and crafts and then jive time sucker by force mds great track get the house party title track done by full force with lisa lisa and cult jam and let's see we also have i can't do nothing for you man one of my favorite tracks off the album by flavor flave and then we have Fun House by Kid and Play, as I already mentioned. And then To the Break of Dawn by LL Cool J. Absolutely fantastic early LL Cool J track. If you've never heard that one, you're going to want to check that out. The album kind of wraps up with Ain't My Type of Hype from Full Force, who, of course, was featured in House Party as well. So that's my pick for the music round. One of my all-time favorite soundtracks from House Party. Nice man. I actually I listen to uh, "Ain't My Type of Hype" all the time. Yes, it's on my phone. I blast it. I dance around. Fucking love, love that, that movie. Just the whole soundtrack, start to finish. It's got a really nice flow to it, and you know, there's there's some love songs in there. There's some jams. You know, it's not just the feel good party music. You got your slow jams in there too. So you really can't go wrong with the house party soundtrack. Now. If the whole House Party franchise were to take another turn and it was going to be cast the way it was originally supposed to be cast, we might have still had a banging soundtrack. Because Kid and Play wasn't the first choice. It was originally written for DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. I thought you were going to say Criss Cross. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to say Criss Cross. <laughs> so that's what I brought for the music round. Let's go down to Taylor Morton for the final ruling on this game. 
Oh man, such good soundtracks, you guys. So great. Um, my only little quibble here is I don't know that I would call House Party a B movie. Yes, that's where I was. I was gonna throw him <laughs> under the bus, but I know he loves that album, or he loves the movie. I love that album. Um, I thought about that, and then I looked at the budget. Two and a half million dollar budget off of 700 screens. I mean, there was other B, B, true B movies that had a much higher budget than that. So, For sure. But I, I tend to think of B movies as having that low production value, no matter what the budget is. You know, there's like something campy or something that they couldn't quite afford. And I can't imagine, how do you make House Party better with another million dollars? Crisscross. <laughs> put the fresh prince in there and crisscross it is what it is but uh no i had that soundtrack on on cassette tape yep. and i had the tank girl soundtrack on cd and i got both of them from columbia house yes. and you could get the like for a penny. 12 cassettes for a penny and then 15 cds for you know 99 cents or whatever it was and uh it was like for whatever reason you know, you could go in there and you, if you liked a movie, you just get the movie soundtracks because you had to pick 12 and they only ever had like four things you had heard of. And then it was all nonsense. Yep. It was like the other five Garth Brooks albums. Why are those? On, you know? <laughs> or you get forced some shit that they would just mail you if you didn't pick them all. Yeah. And that's how you end up with six Kenny G CDs. Oh my <laughs> that's how God. I got my Yanni CD that I have. <laughs> I literally got Kenny G CDs in the mail from Columbia House. <laughs> I don't know why, because you could tell them the genres of music. You know, you could be like, only send me hip hop or rock, and they would still send you the pick of the month. And it was Kenny G, right? Uh, Breathless. <laughs> I think I, that was on cassette, though. <laughs> uh, man, oh man. So it's down to those two. And I. Tank Girl is a B-ass movie. And the soundtrack has so many bands that I, I'm such a 90s like music fan. And when you got Bush and Hole right there, I mean. Not very <laughs> far apart, are they? The jokes write themselves, right? Yeah, who doesn't love a Bushy Hole? I mean, in the 90s, nobody. That's... <laughs> Surprise uh, Landing Strip wasn't on the album. Right? <laughs> Hidden track. <laughs> Yeah, they play uh, uh, airplane music. Oh. There you go. Plus, that soundtrack has, uh, you said it had Devo on it, right? Yeah, Devo uh, recreates one of their songs. Yeah, and Devo, Jerry from Devo was in my first movie. And that guy is cool. And yet I still think House Party is the better music, you know? You're judging it just on the music. I'm going House Party. Oof. All right. So that means I pick up a win in this game. Thank you very much, Tyler, because I don't always pick up a win, especially not with House Party, man. House Party needs more wins, in my opinion. Can't do nothing for you, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally going to get a message on Wednesday when this comes out. House Party's not a B-movie. Guarantee it. You know, but that's it, it is slightly debatable because like B movies have changed over time. Yeah, yeah. You know we what I mean? This, so yeah, we had this conversation I, a couple months yeah, ago. Yeah, I, I kind you can look at it a couple different ways. I mean, people might not might not think of it this way, but Star Wars is a B movie. Right. 
Oh, man. That's what it is. And when I looked at my year, 1990, B movies were the A movies because things changed. There was nothing more B movie ish than Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I'm sure someone's going to say, well, why didn't you pick Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Because we've talked about it several times on this show. We've talked, I've picked the action figures, we've picked the movies before. And yeah, it's a B movie, but it went mainstream and became a blockbuster. That Ninja Turtles soundtrack is fire. It is. <laughs> I had the, the Which VHS one? that they sold of the music videos <laughs> of the soundtrack yep. of the Ninja Turtles movie. Did you have the Pizza Hut one? I still have the Pizza Hut one. It's like coming out of their shells on it. Oh, God, the coming out of their shells tour. I was like <laughs> 92, 93. Oh, man. I, used to, I knew all the words to all the songs off the Ninja Turtles coming out of their shells tour VHS. That thing was magic, man. Like, it is. But you had, you should have won this, though, because seriously, like 90, I said it in the beginning of the episode, you have the hot spot yeah. for B movies. Like you're right in the middle, everything was shifting. And I think 91, I think Mike and I were talking about this a couple like last week or when we got these dates that like towards the mid to end nineties, it's kind of dying out. Like your martial arts movies are kind of like your last of the B movies. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you know, Van Damme's kind of going down that route now and you're like 97, 98, but in 90, you had kind of everything still like you had still had some teen comedies. You still had, you know, some action movies and everything, but you had a lot of it. Yeah. Right in 90. So yeah. that's, you know, if you didn't win this, it would be tough. You had, I come in peace on one aspect. And then you had Ninja Turtles. Like I just said, you know, there were just so many good B movies. You got American Ninja four. Can't go wrong with some of those movies. I mean, Dick Tracy's a genre movie. That's basically a B movie. That was a total B movie. Yeah. A Slumber yeah. Party Massacre 3. I think what happens <laughs> is as you as you go throughout the 90s, you just start getting these bigger budgets, and then you get these big movies with B movie aesthetics, kind of like, like, like Total Recall, you know, right. something like that. Yep. Yeah. Where these things that they used to do in exclusively B movies, you know, now they've got like a budget and they get a big actor and like fucking B movies used to really just be like the B side of a record, like to a double feature. It would yeah. be like the lesser known kind of movie. But like, um, yeah, it does kind of suck that like now it's like, where do you find your B movies? Yeah. You, you know, now they make the movies bad on purpose and it's not yeah. fun. They do still carry the weird, like, I guess you'd still call them B movies, but at Blockbuster, like I, I go there a lot yeah. because I can because I'm lucky because I live right down the street and I'll still walk through I walk through the new release section as often as I can and there's always like a movie or two in there that I've never heard of and it's got you know Travolta or Nick Cage or some they're, they're doing the formula from the 90s of like get one star put them on the box yep. and you know name it something weird and a lot of those movies because of the way everything works now they're never going to be on Netflix Right. You know, they are made for foreign markets, but because Blockbuster is Blockbuster, they're still getting, at least when they have their distributors, they still get these DVDs of these like batshit crazy movies that people still make because they're cheap to make. Have you seen the one with Steven Seagal and Mike Tyson that came out? I think it was last year or maybe two years ago. I saw the box cover. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's an experience. You should get it? that one. Okay. <laughs> I I'll forgot what it's called. Time. 
it's uh but how many movies has mike tyson been in but it's probably pretty easy to find but yeah dude like you you miss all that and those guys just do those movies and they throw them on the box and they're only in it for like five minutes yeah yeah you know they're not really in the movie bruce willis is in a lot of those too so every once in a while you strike gold but it's not like in 1990 or 1991 where you had like brian bosworth and stone cold yeah. You know, and shit like that. Like, you know, it was almost like your action movies were made for the B audience. And, yeah. you know, it's not like that anymore. And there was a big connection, too, with B movies. It paralleled the video rental industry because it was those movies never went to theaters for the most part. Or they went to, you know, very few weeks. theaters. Yeah. And so they were made for these low budget, knowing that they'll make it back at the home video you know, the rental stores, you know, you see that like the budgets went up in the nineties because the video stores were expanding and they were making more money. So straight to video movies had higher budgets because they knew, well, Blockbuster will buy, you know, 52,000 copies of this on day one and Hollywood video will buy another 50,000 or whatever. So you'd see the budgets kind of parallel the industry. And then like DVD came out and DVDs were way cheaper to produce. So, you know, you had this whole other like straight to DVD sequels, like even Disney was making them, you know, in the later 90s. And it's like none of that stuff exists. Like it's like similar to how the reason an album is the length it is, is because that's what would fit on a vinyl record. Like it's dictated by the physical medium. So movies, the same, like the budgets were dictated by these rental stores. And now budgets are dictated just completely arbitrarily like i guess we could sell it to netflix or hulu or you know maybe get enough ad revenue from youtube to justify making some b movie but it it's like not predictable in the way that it was you know it used to be like if you if you got van damme you knew you could spend five million dollars on the movie and you would make 15 million dollars on home video so they just kept doing it Man, I so miss that. But dude, like your documentary is fantastic. Uh, tell people where to get this because if you want to walk down memory lane and you're into this whole conversation that we had and the whole episode, you will love this documentary. I'm telling you. Like I was sitting there last night and I was doing other stuff and I totally got hooked. And then I had to watch it a second time because the beginning part, I was, I was a little bit busy because I was working on the episode, but then I was like, Eh, I'll just watch it again. And I watched the beginning again. And it doesn't feel like you watch it a second time because it's, it's so nostalgic that you're just like, ah, whatever. I'll watch it again. Tell people where they could find it. I, I picked it up on Amazon. I, I believe last night when I rented it. So obviously you can get it there, but where else can you get this thing? Yeah. Ironically, it is available worldwide digitally on Amazon, <laughs> iTunes, Google play, Fandango, Voodoo, all the places. Um, but my favorite way people can get it is we actually have it for rent on DVD at Blockbuster. And you can go to their website and buy the DVD from them. And it's actually shipped from Blockbuster video from like a kid in a Blockbuster uniform. They pack it up and they send it out. It's the first Blockbuster exclusive DVD since 2011. Holy wow. shit. That is nice. awesome. Is there any way you can get that? I'm sure that every person that touched that tape wanted one are you guys planning on uh releasing that yeah we actually um 
the DVD is out now, but the VHS we're planning for January. We're hopeful it'll it'll come out then. VHSs take longer to make. Turns out you have to like make them in real time. <laughs> but we are doing a VHS release with a company called Lunch Meat VHS. And they do oh yeah, that, uh, yep. And yep. that'll be we, out in uh, January. We we totally know him. He's been on the show a couple times. Yep, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, Josh is a good dude. Yeah, and all that stuff you can find on our website. It's uh, lastblockbustermovie.com. There's links to all these things, including the Blockbuster exclusive DVD that will be touched by a Blockbuster employee before it comes to you. That, that is crazy. You know, the, the one thing that I noticed, we talked about Lloyd Kaufman uh, before he's been on the show. And now they, we just mentioned Josh from Lunch Meat, who you also know. You also had Sam Levine, who's also been on the show. You also had Jamie Kennedy that's also been on the show twice. <laughs> like who who should I like hit up from your show? Because I think we're getting the same people. Like I think everyone would fit this perfectly. Who would you yeah. recommend from all the people you spoke to? Well, Kevin Smith, obviously, but that probably is not gonna happen. Yeah, good luck with that one. We barely got it. <laughs> but um, yeah, Kevin Smith would be great. But um, you know who I really love? Um it's just hilarious to talk to is Ron Funches, you know, yeah. comedian Ron Funches. He's, yep. he's been in some movies and stuff, but he's, he's my favorite from the movie. He's, I just think he's just a hilarious dude. Yeah. That guy's hilarious. And he, he loves wrestling and he loves video games. And he's like, he's pretty old school. Perfect. Perfect. I think uh, that would work out. I saw Ioni sky in there. I was like, Oh, that, that's a great one. We'd love to have. Uh, how did you guys go about getting all these people? Did they uh, were they people that you knew through other people or what? A little of that. Um, my producer and writer on the movie Zeke is like an old, not old, not much older than me, but he used to write for TV in Hollywood. He wrote on the Weird Al show and Dexter's Lab, Powerpuff Girls, so he knew some people. He was connected to Jamie Kennedy and um, uh, James Arnold Taylor, the voice actor who's in the movie, and uh, that kind of splintered out and you know people know people uh, but a lot of people we just hit up on social media like yep slid into the dms with a hey we're making a blockbuster video movie you want to be in it and like the same thing i did to you <laughs> yeah and it, <laughs> hey dude you got that that shit looks good you want to come on the show how did right? you how'd you get kevin smith the same way no that was uh real roundabout uh jc reifenberg who owns the scum and villainy cantina where kevin does his podcast where we filmed the interview uh used to be a manager at blockbuster video and so we, we sort of bonded and we we shot with him he's on the dvd he didn't make it into the movie but you know we just talked to him and like uh, kevin would be great worked at a video store you know i grew up watching kevin smith movies i probably wouldn't make movies if i hadn't rented clerks a hundred times from my local video store so we just kept asking and he, he said yes right away, but he's such a busy guy. It took over a year to get the interview shot. Damn. And we kept telling people, no, Kevin Smith's going to be in our movie. We, we're, we're pretty sure, you know, <laughs> he said yes. And we live up in Oregon. So, you know, we would get like a call on a Wednesday. that's like, you can come Friday. You can shoot at 2 p.m. Fuck, it's like it's a $300 flight, man. We're, we're indie filmmakers <laughs> and we actually did fly down a couple of times and it, you know, got postponed and we're just out the money. So we go and shoot something else. Wow. That's the same thing with Doug Benson. Now, Doug, uh, 
I love Doug. Doug loves movies. His podcast <laughs> is, is amazing. And he's just so cool. Like we reached out through the podcast and said, you love movies. We're making a movie about movies and about loving movies. You should very meta, but you should be in our movie about loving movies and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and he was down to do the interview. And during the interview, we just asked him, would you want to come up and visit this last blockbuster? Because a lot of these people we interviewed, we told them we're making a blockbuster doc. They didn't know there was still a blockbuster. Left. You know, we kind of yeah, spring yeah. that on them as we're talking. I think a lot of people everybody did. assumes it's gone. Right. And so we told him there was one left and he was so excited to come up and visit the store. He blew himself up on his own dime and came to Blockbuster and just let us film the experience. And, you know, that bit in the movie where he's experiencing Blockbuster video for the first time in you know, probably 15 years. That's exactly how I felt when I first walked in there and, you know, in 2016 and it blew my mind. You know, you walk around and you're just like, it's the same. No one told these people that Blockbuster went out of business and they just kept it going. And so that I just, I love the bits like that. And the same with like the VHS, we hand people the VHS tape in the movie because I knew from my personal experience, we made a VHS copy of our movie. I held it in my hands and I felt something like, yep. There's, there's a feeling yep. that comes with that. So we hand it to people and you can see, you know, your Sam Levine's and your Adam Brody's and your Ioni Skies. You hand them a VHS tape and it instantly takes them back. So they're like 1988, you know, we're watching Tremors or whatever it is on VHS. And it's not about the movie, but it's about you remember like, who was I on the couch with? Who did I go to the video store with? And like that connection to movies, that's what we're losing with all the streaming. Like no one's going to give a shit about you know, whatever the top movie on Netflix was this month because they never held it in their hand. Yep. They never, you know, they didn't have to work for it. So. God, it's so shitty. I had that experience two years ago. I walked into, uh, I went up to Minnesota and I drove past a family video, which I didn't have growing up, but I was like, holy shit, it's a video store. So I went in. So I kind of had that feeling that you're describing, but the fact that I didn't have a family video it wasn't all the way there. So right. I would love to go to that blockbuster in Ben. I think that would be Mike. What do you say? Like, we'll uh, go now during COVID. Our flights will be like 20 well, flights. Got to be cheaper. We'll have plenty of leg room. <laughs> <Yeah>. Road trip. <laughs> Just a six hour flight with a mask on and we'll uh, go rent a movie. People come from a lot farther away. I'm sure flew from Australia, Spain, and they come just to go to blockbuster. And it's weird. That is wild. But dude, thanks a lot for coming on. And before you get out of here, do you have anything else coming up that uh you have another project or anything like that? Or you're no, but if people are nostalgic for the nineties, my other doc uh about ska music. If anybody likes ska music, check that yeah. one out. That's skamovie.com. Um it's also on Amazon, but you know, love that nineties stuff. Very cool. Uh who did we have we had ska guys on before? But I'm going blank. Who the hell? Real Big Fish. Real Big Fish. Yeah. Yeah. Real Big Fish. Uh, what's his name? Johnny Christmas. Oh, sweet. With the mustache. Yeah. Yeah. He was. Uh, it was right before one of their shows. So he actually did our episode while waiting while somebody else was on stage. So like the audio was a total turd, Ooh. but he was super cool. Super cool. We couldn't get yeah, Aaron because it was uh, with scheduling. We had a 
I don't know. We can only get one of them, but yeah, dude, that's awesome. That's on Netflix. What's that called? It's on Amazon. It's called pick it up guy in the nineties and both Johnny Christmas and Aaron are in that movie. Sweet. All right. So that came out, people liked it and I'm a trumpet player. So I asked him if I could play like a show with them and it was Johnny Christmas is the trumpet player. So he was like, I don't know, man, you sure you can hack it. (laughs) They let me in. I got to play trumpet with real big fish for, for one song, one time at one festival. Oh, dude, that is so awesome. I wanted to see them a couple of years ago. They, they played about an hour away from here in East Stroudsburg at a place called the Sherman. It's like a really small old theater. And there was like a, I forgot what happened. There was like a snowstorm or something. So we couldn't make it up there. And I was so bummed because I've never seen them live. And from all the videos I've ever seen, like all their, their live concerts look fucking amazing. Yeah. But that's awesome. I will, uh, I'll check that out right after I watch heavenly kid for the 60th time tonight. And then I'll throw that on. <laughs> it's a great double feature. Oh, of course. But thanks a lot, dude. We really appreciate you coming on. No problem. It was fun. All right, duelers. Well, unfortunately we're going to have to end this episode right here, but don't worry. If you've missed an episode, you can always head back to our website, www.duelingdecades.com where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, really everywhere. Podcasts are available. And then while you're on those interwebs, head on over to facebook.com forward slash dueling decades, where you can join our private group and share some of your very own retro memories. So until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Podcast New York. Be heard.